welcome to episode eight of season two of Hidden in Plain Sight, the podcast that investigates the possibility that famed Elizabethan playwright Christopher Marlowe did not die in Deptford in 1593. With me as usual are experts Dr. Peter Hodges and Carol Paxton. I'm Dr. Julian Ng, your host for the series, and in today's episode, we're going to look at normal Elizabethan topics such as love, relationships, and venereal disease. So, guys, we need to keep linking everything back yes. to the sonnets. Well, we can start with comparisons between the plays and the sonnets, and Love's Labor's Lost is really the place to begin. Okay. And that leads you directly into the question of syphilis, because Love's Labor's Lost spends a lot of time talking about it. And then you peel out all of these other references to it, and we can have an argument over whether or not Marlowe was focused on this or he was speaking metaphorically. I don't think you go on about it that way without it being real. One of the main objections to Oxfordianism is, oh, it's in the play because it was in his life and we can draw all these Right, no. And we, we don't want to start I'm so, not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm. I'm absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. What I'm saying. What I'm saying is, look, Marlowe uses these words this way. He repeats this theme yeah. this way. There appears to be a conversation between his person that he's addressing this to, and himself about his personal condition, and whether or not that condition is the separation, or whether or not it's actually physical. It has been noted by authorities, you know, doctors and other people who have examined the texts for this kind of thing have noticed that there's really not a lot of mention of the pox, syphilis, canker in the bud, or any of these other descriptive terms before we get Marlowe across the channel. That suddenly the plays that can be attributed to Shakespeare do talk about this, whereas the plays that are attributed to Marlowe don't. And that the sonnets that are written by Marlowe prior to his escape don't talk about this, but they simply don't. And that the sonnets that talk about it actually take place after. And that's why, that's why when I look at Love's Labor's Lost, and then I turn around and I look at at the uh, how many references did I dig up here? There's 55, 60, 63, 35, 66, 67, 89, 95, 99, 111, 118. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. Okay. Anyway. Here's, here's a thought, and you and this is just a a, a vague idea. One thing that we do know about William Shakespeare is that the anecdotes, which may or may not be true, but which do seem to have told, be told about him, all imply that he, well, we have the Manningham anecdote with the meeting the woman after the, the play, the, the uh, William the Conqueror of Richard I. We have the whole thing about who was William Davenant's father. 
We have the character of Philip Sparrow from Stratford-on-Avon in Guy of Warwick, um, Sparrow being Venus, and Sparrow is a is a very debauched sort of character. So is he writing about himself or is he making sly digs at his front man, saying you've landed me with this, this poxy front man? <laughs> I think when we're talking about the plays, you can leave those assumptions open. However, I think in Love's Labor's Lost, it's actually Costard who makes the joke about the French crown, which, of course, is the syphilitic canker. And that then Costard is conceived to be a stand in for Willem in that play. Let me take from the lines that are dealing with the pox. And let me just walk through these because we have in this space between 1593 when he departs and 1598 when we get to the rival poet, we have the separation, we have the commitment to the writing, we have the description of the shoreline and the description of time passing. So we have all of these different elements And then we have this other thing that starts to take place, which, according to John J. Ross, who had written a monograph on this particular issue, he said, I could only find six lines referring to venereal infection in the seven plays Marlowe wrote. However, I find 55 lines in Measure for Measure, 61 lines in Troilus and Cressida, and 67 lines in Timon of Athens. The point being that Marlowe, the plays that are credited to Marlowe are all before 1593, and that all these other plays are taking place afterwards, are written after 1593. And he's observing. He's simply observing. He's not making a case one way or the other, except that it strikes him as interesting that there's this separation between when venereal disease is talked about and when it is not. Right, Travis Cressida, I think there's a lot of Essex references in that, and we all know why Essex wanted to get rid of Dr. Lopez, because Dr. Lopez spilt the beans about Essex. Absolutely, absolutely. And Troilus and Cressida is very much, I think, referencing Essex, so I think that might be... Okay, we'll take that off the plate. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Who knows who's right, but that is what I would say for that. Um, Timon of Athens, I don't know. It's such a funny thing. It's such a game of... Timon of Athens was written over a long period of time. It's the first and the last play. I I don't want to fixate on the plays so much. I just want to make that point that this is his observation, because my observation goes straight into the sonnets. And... The first moment when we read something that might be considered a metaphor for the pox, it comes in the last of the sonnets dealing with his escape, where he says, No more be grieved at that which thou hast done. Roses have thorns and silver fountains mud. Clouds and eclipses stain both moon and sun. And loathsome canker lives in the sweetest bud. And this becomes an image that he then repeats. And he says, often in the context of love and its complications, so in 
in 66, gilded honor shamefully misplaced and maiden virtue rudely strumpeted and right perfection wrongfully disgraced and strength by limping away disabled. Well, that is one of the effects of the pox. Ah, wherefore with infection should he live? And with his presence, grace and piety, that sin by him advantage should achieve and lace itself with his society. <laughs> this is 67. Maybe he's writing about Essex there. Yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, I was uh, talking slightly jokingly about Shakespeare's reputation and maybe he was writing about Shakespeare, but the, we're on much more solid ground when it comes to Essex. Because... But here we keep we keep using this metaphor. There are a lot of ways of metaphorically describing people and situations. But why does it keep coming back? Speak of my lameness, and I straight will halt against thy reasons, making no defense. Oh, sweet and lovely, dost thou make the shame, which like a canker in the fragrant rose doth spot the beauty of thy budding name. Okay, but no, for his... Theft and pride of all his growth, a vengeful canker, eat him up to death. This just because, keeps coming at you. Because Not to that, yeah. make another because, pun. Yeah. Because is that possibly a um a comment on Essex and Southampton? Um Risley, Rosley is a well-recognized uh pun on the name, and perhaps he is talking about the corrupt and pox-ridden Essex corrupting Southampton, both in a political and spiritual sense, and possibly in, implying in a real sense, a uh, physical sense as well. Pity me then, and wish I were renewed. <laughs> Whilst I, like a willing patient, I will drink Potions of Eisel against my yes. strong infection. Yes. He's talking about himself. Yes, but that, since that I learn and find the lesson true, drugs poison him that so fell sick of you. This is, you know, the, the thing about a metaphor like this is that it's useful in a lot of different guises. Mm -hmm. And the prism can be turned and you can see one avenue, one perspective, turn it again. And of course, syphilis got around a lot. It got around more than just about anything. And so a lot of people could complain of it. And he could talk about his own syphilis and compare himself with Essex at the same time. And partisans of Essex would say, it's all Essex. And I would say, it's all Marlowe. But there you go. He can do the same thing with the same card trick. And it finds itself threaded into the dark lady sonnets. But, you know, the question being begged as to whether or not he had syphilis. Now, you know, there are any number of opportunities to catch that disease inside the court. Uh, and if you're working in the theater, I should think that only adds to the number of opportunities. And if at the same time you're acting as a secret agent and mixing with all sorts of people, most of whom have no idea what's going on. They get the illness and they don't know what it is or what caused it. This is 1593, after all. Nobody has any faintest idea why these things happen. The notion of bacteria or viral infection is about as alien as the new world. 
So there it is. And it appears to be a marker for people who are sexually active. Some people are worried about it. Other people just live their lives as they had before. And so in the midst of all of that, and in the midst of London, and in a kind of life that Marlowe could be assumed to be leading, there are an awful lot of people who think that Marlowe was homosexual or that he was bisexual. I'm not going to cast aspersions, but one could assume that those same people would not have a problem assuming that he also got syphilis that way. But, yeah. So I think the repeated theme, and even if he takes the time to launch it against others who are also notorious for it, I mean, it does sort of speak to his awareness of what's going on in the larger world. If he's making references to Essex, of course, some of these sonnets are very late to be talking about Essex. Essex would have been dead if by the time in, you know, sonnet 111, sonnet 118, we can assume that if the Queen died at sonnet 103, Essex was gone well ahead of that. And if the timeline is part of that, then he's not going to be nursing a grudge against Essex to the degree that he's still writing about that. He might be writing about Cecil. He might be yes. talking about Cecil having the pox. That could be. He, yeah. But it's nothing like people who share a malady to talk about each other in a very familiar way. Yeah. I mean, I do think that that's a very good point with Robert Cecil, because we do have to somehow account for an approximate end date for the Shakespeare plays somewhere around 1612. And the key event that happens then is Cecil dying. And my personal view is that from his Cambridge days up to the point of Robert Cecil's death in 1612, that Marlowe was effectively working for an employee of the Burleys, first William, then Cecil. And the yep. reason why the plays, the Shakespeare plays end in approximately 1612, is that at that point, after Cecil's death, Marlowe could finally take a huge deep breath and say, thank God for that, I don't have to do any more work on commission for the Cecils, because he is no longer. Well, it, it may be, thank God, it may also be there's nothing to be gained. Yeah. You know, if the argument is, I'm useful to you, yeah. and now you're dead, and most certainly uh, the politics of the time had certainly moved on. By the time of 1612, 1613, Villers is moved in. He cares nothing about any of this nonsense, and he's certainly not going to. So are there any other references to other Shakespeare-attributed plays in the sonnets? before we start no, talking about I, no and that's and that's a very good question because it's very interesting that other than the rival poet sequence and some oblique things that pop up that we have to use the timeline to sort of flesh out and understand what's going on he doesn't talk about specifics and he certainly doesn't talk about playwriting at all the closest you can come to that is when he says that, you know, you've given me a job to do and, and I will do it because I am your slave. 
And there you go. That's the best. That's you don't know what that's referring to, but if it's Christopher Marlowe, it would appear that that is what it's referring to: is continuing to write and continuing to make a contribution, which ultimately is turned against him because it becomes the property of another man, and Marlowe can't even lay claim to that. As a matter of fact, he's more or less told at some point: if you want to come home, you're going to have to let this other person take control of it. And that's how it's going to have to be. Whether he wanted, ever anticipated that could happen, probably not. But no, he doesn't. He doesn't make, it's it's the very odd one that sticks out. That's one of the terrible or wonderful things about the sonnets is that out of all 154 of them, there's so very little that really tracks back. And it seems as if somebody who was very skilled at making communication without leaving <laughs> too many fingerprints was producing this work. Yes. I don't believe in the Bayes, by the way. There are an awful lot of addressees who have been bundled together under that title by, or if you like, the orthodox interpretation. Uh, there's certainly 1 to 17. It's probably Southampton. There are others which are probably addressed to Thomas Walshingham. There are others that appear to be addressed to a much younger boy in a tone which you might describe as, well, do you want to describe it as uh, uncle to nephew, godfather to godson, or even possibly unacknowledged father to son? There isn't a fair youth. I think that is a complete misinterpretation. Not a fair youth that stands for all of those people you talked about. No, there is a youth, and that is the person that you were just speaking of. And I would agree with you that the first 17 sonnets are very likely written to Southampton on commission for Burley. And then there are others that are addressed to other people, just as there would be if you had correspondence generally. Okay, let's circle back a bit, Peter. You are trying to claim that the sonnets are sequential and that they are a series of letters or correspondence between several people. Is there anything else you can evidence for us that shows this to be the case? Or are we just clutching at straws? No, I think there is something very significant that takes place we need to put a marker down on. And and that is actually the marriage between Sir Thomas Walsingham and Lady Audrey Shelton, or at the time she wasn't a lady, it was simply Audrey Shelton. She subsequently became Lady Audrey Walsingham when she married him, and that appears to have taken place in 1594. Now, I say appears because of two things. One, we don't actually have a record of this wedding, of this marriage. There's no official documentation for it, But we do have two other very important documents from that date, 1594. Both of them are contained in a volume called Rochester in Parliament, which is a book that was compiled by historian B.F. Smith in 1930 on commission from Parliament itself in order to have brief biographies of every member of Parliament since its founding. So Smith was charged with doing the Rochester bit. And I assume, I've not researched all of this, but I assume there are volumes for every other seat 
dating back to the beginning of Parliament because the Rochester version goes all the way back to 1200-something. So we have in that a record for Thomas Walsingham Sr. And in that record, of course, it records his service. It also points out that he was married to Lady Audrey, and it states when he was made a knight, which was in 1594. Now, that has been a bone of contention amongst various people. And I know A.D. Rate had given a date of 1597, which would have been coterminous with Elizabeth's progress through Scadbury in 1597. She planted a tree and celebrated the marriage between Audrey and Thomas. And so the supposition has been for a long time that it was 1597. But the book states 1594. Now, here we are, we have this date of 1594 being when Thomas was knighted, but no date for the marriage. But what we do have is a similar record made for Thomas Jr., who is their son, and he was born in 1594, and that is recorded in this same volume. So one tends to suspect that that boy was not born before they were married, and he wouldn't have been recorded. And one might suspect that Thomas was awarded the knighthood at the time that he was married. Now, why would all of this be important? Well, let's take another look at the sonnets, for instance, to try and help understand why all of this is important. In the sonnets number 40, we have the author saying to presumably Thomas, take all my loves, take them all. What hast thou then more than thou hadst before? No love, my love, that thou may, mayst true love call. All mine was thine before thou hadst this more. And then he goes on into Sonnet 41 and in Sonnet 42, further describing this relationship that has taken place. He says in Sonnet 41, gentle thou art, and therefore to be won, beauteous thou art, therefore to be assailed. And when a woman woos, what woman's son will sourly leave her till she have prevailed? And then in 42, he says, that thou hast her is not all my grief, and yet it may be said, I loved her dearly. This is a very large, expansive area to examine, but fundamentally, I think what you have here is Marlowe drawing a line in time, celebrating, if you will, or accepting more than likely a new relationship between his patron and the woman that he married. And this takes place in 40, 41, and 42 which puts them after Marlowe had to leave London, which was recorded in sonnets 25 to 35, and that would have been in 1593. It also puts this before the rival poet sonnets in 1598. So we put this on a timeline. If we wanted to say it was in 1594, it doesn't violate a timeline. So this is where I'm coming down on those three sonnets as putting us 
in that same context with that same idea that the sonnets are sequential and that they record actual events in real time. Hmm, this is quite interesting. Carol, would you concur with Peter's observations? Well, it's essentially, yes. I suppose we could be talking about late 1593 as opposed to 1594, but that's an absolute quibble, isn't it? And yes, they come after the author, Marlowe's flight from London into exile. And yes, they come before 1598. And if Smith was correct and Thomas Jr. was born in 1594, then we have to consider that those do date from early 94, late 93, but certainly at that stage, and they do fit in the putative timeline. And I think the timeline is a very important tool of analysis, because although I don't want to get into a situation where we're twisting the facts to fit the theory, which is always a terrible danger, having a theory and testing the facts against the theory is a really important thing to do. And here we have a fact that uh, Peter has dug up in this book from 100 years ago that places the marriage in 93 or 94 as opposed to 97, as AD rate was very insistent that was when it happened, and the timeline fits, whereas if we put it in 97, the timeline fails. There's another thing I want to say about this, because I have you know run this by a number of people, and there are folks who will say, well, I think... Audrey married Thomas in 1590. What are you going to do with that? And I think the argument against that is really, if we are following the sequential order and we are following the timeline, then it's very significant that this particular event is memorialized in these sonnets in this part of the sequence and not before, right? We have the writer of the sonnet saying to his patron, now you've got my girlfriend. And th th that subject hasn't come up before. It didn't come up in the sonnets that we know were written around 1590. Those are the ones written to Southampton on his 17th birthday. So what is, what's going on here? We know that these sonnets are written, as if we look at them in a sequence, following Marlowe's departure from London. Hang on, wait a minute. Are you telling us that Christopher Marlowe actually had a girlfriend who then became Thomas Walsingham's wife? Wow. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well yes, I, I, because he said... I, I'm not... I'm not necessarily totally happy. And yet it may be said, I loved her dearly. Now, I, you know, did she consider herself his girlfriend? I don't know. But he says, I loved her dearly. And now you have her. That is opening the door to the question whether or not we're satisfied at the end that the answer is yes. There is definitely an issue that needs to be understood and explored. And I think, you know, if we come back again, I think I would love to do that. Yes, I'm inclined to think it's fairly one-sided because there is certainly an implication, and now the number's gone out of my head, in some of the Dark Lady sonnets, that she was not so interested in him because he was a socially inferior broke poet. And that however amusing she found his company, 
he wasn't somebody she would marry because he had no social status, he had no money, he had he had nothing in that department, whereas Thomas Walshingham had both. Well, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. But that's getting ahead, yeah. And I would also say, if the author is making these allegations, you have to take that with a grain of salt. We don't know what she thinks. We no. don't. We don't actually know. He's saying this to her at a remove and judging her behavior and making certain statements out of what I would consider a jealous context and also one of extreme frustration. I mean, at a certain point in time, he's going to start saying all sorts of stuff because he's still stuck on the continent somewhere. Yeah. But anyway. But I think Carol is probably right, though. I mean, Audrey's a very canny operator. She probably wouldn't want to give up all the luxuries in her life just for love. <laughs> I think this if is it was that. Well, no, she's not a dummy. And she makes a great effort, which is in many ways unappreciated, to square a circle. Yeah, and we might even speculate that Thomas's success becoming master of the wardrobe, etc., was down to her. Oh, I, I absolutely believe that. I mean, I think there's a great deal of advancement that takes place within that family context that without her would never have occurred. Yeah. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. But guess what? That's it for another scintillating episode, folks. As we discover more and more things that were hidden in plain sight, we are expanding our series by a few more episodes. Haha, bet you didn't see that coming. We are thrilled with all the feedback you have been sending in, so please keep on doing it. Until next time, it's goodbye from us.